0: Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's This B-R-I-O-N McLanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free Audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've heard about that already. Great way to support the show. You can purchase one or 20 classes there. Keep the podcast free of charge. You can also click on that little super thanks button if you're watching this on YouTube. It's under the video. You can support the show that way. Click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way that way or go to anchor.fm. You can become a subscriber to the podcast there. But as always... Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share it around on social media. That's how we grow the audience organically. That's how we get people interested in the show. And send me those show requests. I do like to hear what you want to hear on the program. All right. Well, let's talk about, I think it's a really interesting topic to me. This was an article I saw today. It's from the Military Times. And it goes back to some of the things I've talked about on this show when it comes to the expansion of the size and scope of the general government. You see, this is a long-standing issue. What is the role of the standing army in the United States? We know as we go back into the 1780s that the United States, or at least the, the leadership of the United States, certainly had an aversion to a standing army. We know that the United States standing army was very small uh, at the founding period, and that generally... Americans that the United States should be defended by a citizen militia. Now, the militia was every able-bodied citizen of a certain age. And we know this because in the first years of the Congress, they passed the Militia Act, which required men of a certain age to have a, have a firearm, a certain amount of powder, a certain amount of ammunition. There was a lot of discussion about drilling and training the militia. This would be done on a regular basis. And so the idea was to have a group of citizens protect the United States. We didn't want a standing army, or the founding generation didn't want a standing army, for the most part, because they thought a standing army was dangerous to the liberty of the people. And their example certainly was Europe. You look at France, you look at Great Britain, large standing armies, and what those standing armies had done. You also look in the 18th century, people like Frederick the Great, were able to marshal a large standing army and then, of course, use that to secure power. Um, and this is something the founding generation worried about. They worried about these large armies. Now, of course, by the time you get to the French Revolution, you see an extremely large standing army, the Léve-en-Masse, and, and uh, that would then, again, lead into Napoleon and what he was able to do. So there was always this fear of what a singular executive with the power of the sword, complete power of the sword, could do to the liberties of a free people, and it was thought that republicanism was alien to this. Right? And you even look at the the history of Rome and Greece. I mean, you had you certainly had in those areas uh, throughout time. You had different periods. You had periods with a strong standing army. Then you had periods of citizen soldiers. And in Rome, you know, you, the, the model for George Washington was the great Cincinnatus, who was a farmer, picked up. The sword, put down the plow, picked up the sword, saved Rome, and went back and picked up the plow again. This is what generally the founding generation thought people should do. They should be a, a farmer first or a mechanic first or whatever it was. And then they would be called on to defend their state or their country from invasion and then go back to being what they were before Well, we know over time that that idea has eroded in America. Now, of course, we have in the United States more money spent many times over on the standing army than all the next countries combined, right? We spend more money on our military complex and our military apparatus, the entire structure, than I think like the next 10 countries combined behind us. So the United States spends a lot of money on the military. Mm Our modern military is about a million men when you look at men and women, when you look at the entire structure and how it's set up. You're talking about a large, a large entity in the United States that has a lot of political clout. This is what people warned against in the 20th century post World War II. We know that up until about World War I, America was still generally in favor of a citizen militia. Even during the Civil War, the army on both sides was made up, at least initially, of volunteers to go fight north and south. And then, of course, you would see the Conscription Acts passed in both north and south, and you would start seeing a standing army. What's interesting about that, and William Marvel has written about this, I'm going to get into the piece and how this applies today. William Marvel has written about this that in the North in particular, not you couldn't find it as much in the South because there wasn't any money there to do this, but in the North, you had a large amount of money being expended on people joining the military. This was a job. It came down to a job. And uh, people like Henry Dean and the class I'm working on right now at McClanehan Academy, which should be out in about a week or so, maybe a little longer, called Copperheads, I talk about Lincoln's opponents and Henry Clay Dean brings us up how, how the army itself were just ragtag bunch of people that were basically bummers, right? They they joined the army because they needed a job and you had a lot of people doing that way. Marvel has pointed this out and with, with verifiable evidence that men were joining because they got a paycheck. Clay, Henry Clay Dean talks about the offices that were set up to get substitutes, right? So there was a lot of money in this. People were making a tremendous amount of dough on the fact that people were buying themselves out of the army. And then, of course, they were paying for a substitute who would get a job, essentially, out of it. And this turned into an occupation. Your occupation was soldier. Now, we know before the war, there was, there was a certain professional class of officers. Robert E. Lee was a professional soldier, for example, uh, in in the South. I mean, you had these people. They went to West Point. And then they would go, and they would often serve in the military on the frontier or other places. But it's still a very small number of people that were engaged in this. And a lot of these people, of course, were engineers. They would go into uh, to the academy, the military academy, and uh, they would learn engineering. And so this is why you look at you know what the, what the military was able to do, uh, the corps of engineers and dredging out rivers and other things. Why Lee was actually in on the frontier for a time, doing this kind of stuff. You also had, of course, in Annapolis, you had the Naval Academy there, and same thing, you would have a professional class of men who were serving in the Navy. But the United States Navy in 1860 only had about 40 ships, 40 vessels, 40 ships. The entire Navy, 40 ships. By the end of the war, they had 800, right? The, the Confederate Navy had zero ships, but in the war, they had close to 200, somewhere in there. So, um, But 40 ships for the entire Navy because they didn't have a large professional class of sailors and of course the US military very small as well in 1860 it didn't have it the war though what happens at the end of the war you have people trying to figure out how to hang on to their jobs so when the war's over, they're getting a nice paycheck out of it. They survived the war. They've, now they want a job. And of course, those that weren't able to do it, this is where you get the pensions and other things. So you get a large class of welfare recipients, essentially, coming out of the Civil War. This is why the Congress had to set aside a certain amount of time in each week just to deal with the pension bills. When Grover Cleveland becomes president and he starts vetoing all these things, he's vetoing pension bills for people that didn't deserve it. Deserters, bummers, people that were trying to get a pension because they had chronic diarrhea. I mean, just ridiculous things that people were trying to do. So this is an interesting part of the whole whole situation. We started creating a welfare system because of the United States Army. Now John Randolph of Roanoke, I can't put my finger on the speech. I've read it, and I read it years ago, and I I was taking a little time trying to find it before this for this uh, episode, and I couldn't find it. It's out there. I'll find it eventually. But he talks about this. He talks about the fact that um, if you create this professional army, you're creating essentially a welfare system. That there are going to be people that are going to join up simply because they're going to get benefits out of it. They're going to get a paycheck. It's a job. right? So the permanent professional army becomes a system of welfare. Now, the army shrinks after the war is over. It expands slightly when we get to the Indian Wars. Then, of course, you get the Spanish-American War. You get people signing up, but then it's going to shrink again. It's going to expand out during World War I, but even then, it shrinks back down when the war is over. World War II is a transformative event, though. Because in World War II, we have, of course, the largest army in the history of the United States. At that point, you've got tens of millions of men in the United States Army. And when the war is over, it never shrinks, really. I mean, it goes, it'll come down, but we don't see the kind of... Uh, of contraction in that particular point like we saw in other wars. Why? Because we've created a system where the United States is going to stay on a military footing from 1941 essentially to the present. And it we have an ongoing perpetual war. After World War II is over, what do we have? Well, we have the Cold War. And after the Cold War is over, well, what do we have? We have the War on Terror. So you gotta keep this large professional army in place. And again, this creed has created over time a type of welfare system in America. Now it doesn't mean that you don't have soldiers that join up for the volunteers that join up for the right reasons and they want to go out and defend the United States and they want to do the right thing, and these are a lot of these men will go out and they'll be elite soldiers and they'll do some really amazing and fantastic things and their training is elite and you, you watch any particularly in the elite branches. You watch what some of these people do, and it's just amazing stuff. Fighter pilots, I mean, and of course, this is not just men, but in some of these cases, women, fighter pilots, for example. So you have people that are um, that are certainly well trained. In you know, in, in modern warfare, you need just like you. And I'm not just saying. In modern warfare goes back to the 19th century. You need a certain percentage of men or soldiers. We can say now men and women who are well trained to be in these positions so that if you do need the citizens to come in, you just don't have a bunch of you know, people that don't know what they're doing, right? People are there are there are people that are well trained enough to lead the situation forward. We saw in the Civil War you had a lot of political generals and they slaughtered people at times. I mean, so you're going to need some people who know what they're doing to direct the United States military, should it be necessary. But You also have a whole lot of people out there who look at this as a job. In fact, in the modern military, and I'm talking about now the current military, it takes about 30 people behind the scenes to outfit every one soldier in the field. So for every one soldier, boots on the ground, actively fighting the enemy, wherever that may be, whatever our situation is, and of course we we can talk about foreign policy and how much of a disaster that is. It's not the soldier to blame for that. But we have... 30 people behind the scenes supplying or doing all the paperwork and everything else for that one soldier. And these people, these people are basically in a government job. It's a welfare situation. It is, that's what we have, right? So that's why I want to talk about this article because this article, more than anything else, admits it. Now we also know the United States military has become a testing ground for social justice and uh, leftist social justice policies, whether it's, you know, whatever, we're, it's, it's, a, it's a laboratory. It's a place to experiment with these things. And so we see that constantly in the United States military now. They're experimenting with these different uh, attitudes and ideas on various things. Also, it's a place that uh, you can certainly infuse the population with, you know, rah-rah American jingoism and the idea of the American empire being just. I'll never forget. Years ago, I was teaching uh, the late 19th century and into American imperialism, and I had a student, a wife of a soldier, came and uh, obviously she went home and she talked to her husband about this, and and uh, they got, I mean, he got very upset about this. How can you, you're, this liberal is telling you all these terrible things about America? And she mentioned this in class, and my response to that was, well, I mean, look, this is not a reflection on any soldier or anything that, that they're doing. But foreign policy is made by the political class, not the soldiers. And so um, the issue, though, is that these people that generally join the military and, and uh, they they start to imbibe these things. And then, of course, it becomes certainly part of their worldview. America has to be an empire. America is doing good. And you look at the propaganda that comes out of the military and it's it's a lot of that, right? The force for good and all these things. So but for many people the military now is a welfare state it's a welfare check and and this article talks about that so let me get into it this is from the military times and the the title is survey raises serious questions about the future of the all volunteer force now in reading the title the, the point of this article is to say well maybe if we don't get enough people signing up we're going to have to go back to conscription we're going to have to start drafting people in the military and it's it's shocking, right? I mean, well, we don't want to do that. We need to start getting people in this all-volunteer force. What are we going to do about that? Well, according to Peace, we need to provide more money for families in the military. So think the idea is that if we don't do something, we're not going to have enough soldiers, uh, and you know we're cutting twenty-eight thousand soldiers, and we're we're going to be unprepared to fight wars. I mean, the United States military again is is not unprepared to fight anything. In terms of financial commitments or equipment, uh, it's not unprepared in any of that. You could say that maybe soldiers aren't as well-trained as they used to be or whatever the case may be. I, I don't know. But, I mean, you can make some arguments that way. But in terms of finances, it's not. Now, let me get into this. This is by Karen Jowers. And the piece says, The results of a new survey of military and veterans and spouses, including details on financial difficulties... Raise concerns about the future of the military, said the executive director of the organization that conducted the survey. So, financial difficulties. And it's going to get into what these things are. Fewer military veterans and spouses are likely to recommend military service, according to the findings, and the reasons are related to their own well-being, said Shannon Razidin president and executive director of the Military Family Advisory Network. So why aren't they going to recommend it? Well, because the financial difficulties. And here's the quote. At the end of the day, families are having a hard time making ends meet. That's affecting their overall well-being, she said. We see the connection between well-being and loneliness, well-being and housing, well-being and food security. When you layer that on top of the fact that fewer people are likely to recommend military service, it paints a very clear picture of concern related to the future of of the all-volunteer force. You see, the problem in the American military is that people don't have adequate housing and food, and they're lonely. Well, loneliness, if you're talking about spouses, is often caused by long-standing deployments, right? I mean, that's that's an indictment of the American Empire. But then, housing and food security—well, um, th- that gets into how soldiers are housed and where they get their, how they get their paycheck. And look, soldiers are allowed. To live on post most of the time so if they live on post they're given housing they can be given food there too but you see a lot of soldiers choose not to do that because they don't want to be they don't want to be worn down or burdened with the rules and requirements of living on post so they go live off post and they're given a, a housing allowance but then they go beyond that and of course if you're an officer you can't there's some things you can't do but if you're not an officer there are some things you can do and of course you can ruin your credit and other things um, so this is the issue. They don't want to have to follow the rules and regulations of being on post, so they go off post, and then of course you run into issues of quote-unquote food security and housing. So here is the problem. It doesn't pay enough. People aren't. The idea in this article is that people aren't given enough welfare. They're not given enough paycheck or anything else to go and be in the army. We need to increase the benefits, in other words, of being in the military. And then more families would sign up for it. Now, can you imagine making this argument for government employees or those on public assistance? Or what, you know, the problem is, Republicans, let me just say this, Republicans would go ballistic about this. What are you saying? We don't want to give more government employees money. We don't want to give more people on public assistance money, but you put it in terms of the military. Oh, we got to pay more for this. we got to pay more for these people. This is the fourth survey fielded by the organization, generally every two years. This time, the biggest surprise, said Razadin, was the drop in the percentage of survey respondents who said they would recommend military life from 74.5% in 2019 to 62.9% in 2021. So we're not paying people enough. And we need more benefits, more programs. And it's we're not, we're not doing enough for families in the military. Now I thought the military was about signing up to defend the United States, and it's going to be a rough time, and you do it uh, because you know this is something that you have a calling to do it, et cetera, et cetera. And if you don't want to do that, then you get out, and then you have a family and other things. But no, no, what they're saying is this isn't good enough for a career. That you don't—it's not—it's not enough money to go out and be in a career in this situation. It's not good for a family. That's—that's that's the point of this. Think about it. This is what they're saying. The online military family support programming survey was fielded from October 4th to December 15, 2021, with 8,638 people participating. The largest group of respondents was spouses of active duty members at 44%, followed by active duty members at 14%. Nearly 60% of the respondents overall between the ages of 25 and 39. So the largest group were the wives. And then the, the active duty members only 14%, those that are actually in the middle, but the wives are saying, you're not paying us enough. We don't have enough money here. We, we're lonely. You've got our husbands off out fighting all the time, or who, maybe it's your maybe it's your wives off fighting all the time, and we're not getting a big enough paycheck. We don't have enough good enough housing. So in other words, this isn't a good enough job for us. We're not going to recommend this job to other people. It's not a good enough job for my husband or wife to do because they can't support a family on it. Again, is that the job of the United States military to do this? This is what Randolph talked about. This is what was mentioned. In Marvel talking about three three hots on a cot, essentially for the American military in 1861. This is what this is what the argument was against it. You create a class of dependents. Do you want to do that in the United States? And look at the ages, 25 to 39. This is troubling for us, Radsden said. It was really. The, the fact that families do not feel like military life lines up with family life. Oh my gosh! All right. So, what we need to do is make it more family-oriented. We need to have a kinder, gentler family life for the United States military. Based on their answers, the reasons related to frequent separations, other words, this is an indictment of imperialism, but they're just not saying it. So, frequent separations meaning you got to go do your job. And the job, of course, nowadays entails... Long-standing deployments or many deployments, and you're overseas a lot. Look, I see again in in where I a, a lot of times how this wrecks families and other things. It's it's hard on people. It's hard on kids. It's hard on spouses. It's hard on soldiers. It's hard on people. All these deployments. So how do you stop that? Stop fighting wars all over the world. Get get out of over hundred plus countries. You you could do that. And the fact that military life is not conducive to family life, she added, noting that the fact that the survey was conducted on the heels of the U.S. military's exit from Afghanistan in 2021 didn't show up in the findings, however. In general, over the years, a number of military children have followed in their parents' footsteps, but there are indications those trends were waning, with other surveys finding that military parents are increasingly unlikely to recommend service to their children. A recent survey of military teens found that 65% still want to serve in the military. Well, again... they're they're doing what they see, right? It has benefits, and it's a job, and of course they got the rah-rah stuff involved in it, so they want to go out and do it. But still, 65% want to do it, but 35% maybe not. And maybe military, well, this isn't good for you. This is not a good life for you. The The MFAN report also pointed to a root cause of many problems that military families have understood for years. The military move. In 2021, those who had recently experienced a permanent change of station reported negative or very negative experiences with the reimbursement of moving costs. So they're upset they're not being paid enough to move at 40%. Effects on spouse employment at 38% and change in cost of living at 56%. The future of the organization will further look at these negative experiences, researchers stated. Now, I've heard that one thing people will do, you, right? You get a pod, you go to move, and you put your stuff in the pod, right? And this is what the military does. Well, I've heard what people will do, and this is just hearsay, but they will put bags of concrete in the front of it because you're paid by weight. So the more weight you have in the thing, the more you're paid. <laughs> so there, there's, and, you know, the waste and people purloining supplies and other things out of this, it's tremendous. There's a tremendous amount of corruption and waste in these type of things. But again, this is the, this is part of the problem. We're not paid enough to move. Our jobs, I mean, our spouses have to go get a job somewhere else, and it might be more expensive to go somewhere else, so our housing is not enough. And that's the next part, burden of housing costs. The survey provided more data on the impact of rising housing costs. Nearly half, 45% of currently serving families experience a severe housing burden. Spending more than 50% of the household income on housing costs such as mortgage or rent and utilities. That compares to 20% of veteran and retiree families. Well, again, can these people not stay on post? But no, a lot of them don't want to. They want to go and buy a house in a community somewhere and live off post and have all the freedom that comes with that. They don't want to live on the base because living on the base is not as fun. right? You go live off the base and you can do more of what you want to do. You don't want to live there on post with a whole bunch of other soldiers. You want to get off post but you're provided these things if you want to live on post During an MAFN panel discussion of the results Marine Corps wife Hannah Romer said she and her husband are making rent and mortgage payments now in order to secure housing when they move from Monterey, California to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina They're set to PCS in December or being outbid by cash offers while house hunting in North Carolina so they made the decision to build a house and to look in their interest rate and to lock in their interest rate in March Meanwhile, in Monterey, some families who arrive in June were still living in hotels by mid-July, waiting for housing, she said. The survey found the situation in the local housing market ranked among the top five reasons for living on base in 2021. wasn't noticed in previous year's surveys. So, what, again, what are they saying? Well, uh, we're soldiers, and we think we need to live off-post. Well, you could live on-post and not have to face these things, but you don't get that juicy paycheck. Which, of course, and then they're going to complain. The paycheck's not high enough for me to live off post. You're a soldier. You could live on the base with all the things that come with that. But no, no, no. You want to live off post. So see, this is people are complaining about not having enough to do things like people in the outside world who aren't working for the military. you know. But uh, And there's lots of people that complain about housing costs outside of the military, too. I mean, this is not just a situation. But, you know... This is, we're talking about benefits now. This is a job for these people. This is, we're not paid enough to be in the military. It's not about the military anymore. It's about the benefits. In 2021 and continuing in 2022, military families have been affected by skyrocketing housing prices. For those who lived off base, the poor condition of military housing has been the top reason of the survey since 2019, but the lack of available military housing has also consistently been among the top reasons. There was a bright spot regarding privatized military housing, Razadin said. Residents are seeing better responsiveness on repair issues from their housing companies, but the results show issues of the military command's responsiveness to military privatized housing issues. The legislation enacted in the last two years has aimed to require better response from housing companies and improve the conditions, as well as improve oversight of this housing by the military. Most of those who lived in privatized housing, 64%, said the condition of their housing is unchanged, but 28% said conditions have gotten better, 8% they have said they have gotten worse. The survey this year asked about total household income. Of the currently serving military families who participated, 44% have a combined household income between 25000 and 75000 before taxes. That includes basic allowance for housing. Hunger and food insecurity are more common in families that experience high stress due to finances, according to the finding. So again, um, you know, this it's, it's comes down to we're not paying these people enough to be in the military this this isn't this isn't enough we're the, the the three hots and the cod is just too small and of course and these people have families and they do so we got to pay them more to be in the military uh they're they're begging for more of that in 2021 one in six or 16.6 percent of military and veteran families were experiencing food insecurity or hunger compared to about 15 percent in 2017. the highest frequency of those experiencing food insecurity was among currently serving including guard and reserve families at 18.4%, residents said. In addition, 9.6% of the population were experiencing very low food security hunger. she said. Of those who had problems with food insecurity, 96% used federal assistance programs such as Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program and the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, that's SNAP and WIC, and 70% of those said they found those programs helpful. So, they're, they're getting government assistance, plus they're getting a paycheck from the government. I mean, again, what is this? What do you call this? What, what would this be called? This is what we, we looked at with the war. What, what you do when you create a professional standing, permanent standing army, you've just created a whole group of people that are on the system. It doesn't matter what system it is, they're on the system. And we've got you've got your, your health care, you've got all the things that go along with it, and um, that, this is, this is a, 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 people have pointed this out for years. This is what you get when you do this. And it creates patronage as well. A lot of these people, they're guaranteed. Now, not everyone, people in the military don't all vote one way. Don't get me wrong. But generally, the military tends to support the Republicans more than the Democrats. And so you create patronage and you create supporters. It's not the case all the time. And we see that's, that's true. But this is generally what happens. Overall, veteran and currently serving military families have trouble saving money. Uh, This is the case with Americans in general right now. In veteran families, 38% have less than $500 in emergency savings. In currently serving military families, 22% have less than $500 in emergency savings. For military retiree families, 70% have less than $500 in emergency savings. Enlisted families are most likely to have low or no emergency funds. At the other other end of the spectrum, 29% of currently serving families... 34% 34% of military retiree families and 21% of veteran families reported having $10,000 or more in emergency savings funds. The most significant hurdle reported in saving money was income, but respondents also cited increased cost of living and inflation. This survey was fielded when some of the COVID protections were still in place before this massive inflation, residents said. It's a really big concern of ours. And of course, not even pointing out that COVID protections were, are causing the massive inflation. We're hearing from families, especially families overseas right now, about major problems making ends meet with issues of gas prices and cola changes and things like that. So here are the recommendations. So listen, I mean, this is what the, the Military Times says that needs to happen in the United States military. It's Again, think about this. This, this, is, this is now a paycheck. This is a job in how this is being sold. Recommendations. Increase the availability of health care and mental health appointments. Addressing this issue requires a close look at the reimbursement rates to ensure that community-based providers are appropriately compensated for their time in a way that is commensurate with civilian community, they wrote. Increase the availability of child care. So commensurate with civ- civilian community, right? So make it more like the civilian community. Uh, increase the availability of child care, right-size basic allowance for housing, to decrease the housing cost burden on military families. So give us more benefits. Review the pay structure. With the challenges of frequent moves, military spouse unemployment and childcare, many military families must make ends meet on the service members pay alone. The data show that relying on a single income to sustain the household is problematic for many, the researchers stated. In a recently released report detailing plans to address food insecurity in the military and longer-term economic security, defense officials outlined some steps such as increasing child care options, working to increase employment opportunities for spouses, and reviewing the housing allowances and other allowances. So, let's create a bigger safety net program out of the United States military. Just make it bigger. It just becomes a paycheck. In addition, DOD is working with the White House to initiate the 14th Quadrennial Review of Military Compensation later this year. And so that's going to change things, too. But, I mean, you think about this. Go back to the early 19th century. Randolph says if you create a large permanent standing army, you're basically going to get people that are signing up for a paycheck. Go forward to the 1860s, you had people signing up for a paycheck. Move forward to the 20th century, you have people signing up for a paycheck. And in the 21st century, the same exact thing. I had a student tell me one time that um, he signed up for I mean, to get a college degree. And, of course, then 9-11 happened. This was years ago. 9-11 happened. And so he had to go out and and actually do something you know, in the military. But he, just, he didn't want that. He wanted to sign up for a college degree. That's why he joined the military. It was about the benefits. It was about the benefits. So this is where... <laughs> The, the military sells itself, bonus signing bonuses and benefits and other things. Well, these things, we're not going to recommend this to families because we don't have enough money now. we got to get more money out of this. You can't do this. So that becomes an issue. So this is why the argument was there against a standing army. You just don't have that. You have a citizen militia. People have to go out and have real jobs and do real things. And then they're called, they, they, they have to train and other things on the side so they can go fight if they need to as a militia. Because the, the idea of the uh, permanent military is a huge financial commitment. As this is pointing out, people are not recommending it because they're not getting the type of safety net benefits they think they should be getting from the United States government. Anyways, I found this piece fascinating in historical context because you look at how these things have developed over the years and this is where we are and the real root of the problem of course is American foreign policy and imperialism which creates the need to have this very large standing army and all these bases everywhere else and all these things families are overseas well you know how you solve that? bring them home. You know how you solve this problem of separation? get out of all these foreign wars. It's pretty easy instead of saying well we should just spend more money on these things. No, No, just change the policy and a lot of this changes Almost overnight, you don't need a big military if we're just talking about defending the United States. But when you start looking at defending everybody else around the world, number one, and of course, also, um, you know, uh, going into hundreds of countries around the world, number two, that creates the need for all of this cash to spend on the United States military. but And need for the, the big welfare programs. All right. I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.